was, um, I'm in my fifth year, fifth and final, hopefully, year of seminary. And um, this is what I got to spend my fall doing was this, this passage in Matthew. Um, and we had a biblical interpretation class where we got to choose a verse that we wanted to exegete, which is just a fancy word for saying, find out what it really means. And uh, spent three months researching this and um, wrote a long and boring paper. So I'm well prepared and very well uh, familiar with this verse, and that's why they're allowing me to do this this morning. And what we're going to do to start off, if you've ever spent any time thinking about this scripture, this scripture is known as the unpardonable sin. Um, and it's a very troublesome verse for a lot of Christians, rightfully so. Um, but we're going to start off this morning by reading part of it. The whole passage is 22 through 37. We're going to read part of that this morning. We're going to read 22 through 33 or 34 um, in the NIV, NIV version. So I'll put this up here and I'll read it for you. Here we go. Then they brought him a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute, and Jesus healed him so that he could both talk and see. All the people were astonished and said, Could this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard this, they said, It is only by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, that this fellow drives out demons. Jesus knew their thoughts and said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself will be ruined, and every city or household divided against itself will not stand. If Satan drives out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then can his kingdom stand? And if I drive out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your people drive them out? So then they will be your judges. But if I drive out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or again, how can anyone enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man? Then he can rob his house. He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. And so I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven men, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but anyone who speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. Make a tree good, and its fruit will be good, or make a tree bad, and its fruit will be bad, for a tree is recognized by its fruit. It's clear now, right? You got it? No need to keep talking? Um, that is a very confusing passage, and especially in the NIV, which is what we just read, the New International Version. As I mentioned, this is historically one of the most troublesome scriptures in the New Testament for Christians to deal with, because the way it's presented in this translation is that there's some invisible line out there that we might cross, and people wonder if they've crossed it. Have I gone too far? Um, and the reality is a lot of theologians would tell you that all you need to say on this topic is if you're the kind of person that worries whether or not you've committed the unpardonable sin, then you're not. And there's some truth in that. That's probably the simple version. We're going to dig a little deeper this morning. And as I mentioned, we're going to start off by talking about translation. We just read in the NIV translation, the New International Version. And when you're trying to get to the heart of what's being said in Scripture, what's going on, what was really being communicated to the audience at the time, translation matters. So we're going to look real quick at a brief explanation of translations and how this works. There's really not that many translations of the Bible in English. There's about eight or nine. Um, and every other Bible that you've ever seen is a variation of one of those. Some translations are more literal meaning word for word. Some translations are more idiomatic, which just means they get at the spirit 
or the meaning, the heart of what was being said, but they don't do it literally word for word. And if you can see this, this little blue bubble down at the bottom that says original text, here's the problem. We don't have any. There are no original texts in the Bibles that we have. We don't have that source yet. It might be out there buried in the desert somewhere, but we haven't found it yet. What we do have are really, really old copies, which is that next bubble to the left. And we have copies of the New Testament that date back to the time of, times of the disciples. So they're, you know, they're good copies, but they're not the originals. We don't have the original autographed by Matthew signed copy of the gospel. So important to know that we start with translations already. We start with copies already. If you're doing the Old Testament, those copies are going to be in Hebrew or Aramaic. If you're looking into the New Testament, the point of origin, it's going to be in Greek. Every English translation that you've ever read, there's a few that come from Latin, but that's actually a step further. They're all coming back to the Greek. So this is where we begin, is with the Greek. And you'll see that if you go around, you might recognize some of these translations. The most literal English translation is the NRSV, New Revised Standard Version. It doesn't read very pretty, but it is your, we're going to find a Greek word and we're going to replace it with its English equivalent translation. And it's kind of cumbersome, but it's literal. If you go around the circle, you'll see NIV up there at the top. That's kind of not that literal, not that idiomatic, but it reads well, except for the passage that we just read a minute ago. Um, and it's, it's fairly easy to understand, which is a good thing. And then you come back around here, you might be familiar with the message. Um, down here on the idiomatic side, that's a fairly popular Bible. Um, and it is not literal, but its author, Eugene Peterson, went to the Greek and did his best to get to the meaning of what was in those, those Greek texts and represent that, the spirit of it, in modern-day words, words that we understand. So that, that's a good thing to know as we begin this study. And I'll, I'll give you one example of why this matters. If you are familiar with the NIV, if you have a copy of that, um, and this happens in some other Bibles as well, there are titles in the Scriptures. Um, you might open your book of Matthew and see little subheadings like Jesus and the woman at the well. And then from there flows the Scripture of Jesus meeting the woman at the well. Or Jesus before Pilate is another one, and you see that section, and then it's the Scripture about Jesus going before Pontius Pilate. On this section that we're talking about today, there's this title that says, the unpardonable sin. Matthew did not write that title. Important to know. That right there, we're already being interpreted down a path that's kind of scary. Because the interpreters of the Bible have tried to help us organize and categorize. And they stuck this title in there that just jumps off the page for me. The unpardonable sin. Whoa. There's, I don't know if I want to read that section. I don't know if I want to know that. But right there, we're already subject to interpretation. So that's something to be wary of. What we're going to do this morning is try to get into the Greek a little bit and see if we can find a little bit more clarity for the Scripture. Because we're, I don't think we're getting the clarity in the NIV. And that was a long passage. We're not going to translate all of that because we'd be here for days. But we are going to translate the most important verse in there, the most troublesome verse. And that's verse 31. Um, that is where the punchline, as it were, is for this. Therefore, I tell you, people will be forgiven for every sin and blasphemy, but blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. 
That's the, it all kind of centers around that verse. That is the trouble verse. Because now we have a sin that I won't be forgiven of. And what am I supposed to do with that? What we're looking at here is the New Revised Standard Version of that one verse. So this is the most literal English translation of that verse. I want to take that verse and dig into it with some of the Greek meaning of the words. So if you'll bear with me here, the first word that jumps off the page is forgiven. Forgiven in Greek is aphime. The word that's, the word that's used there in the Greek is aphime, which literally means to send away or let go. And I don't know about you, but I really, I really prefer that. That's, it just tells me a little bit more. that, And I have a dash here that says divorce or separate. And the reason is that it is still, to this day, the word the Greeks use to describe divorce. The same word that is used for forgiven, aphime, is used for divorce. And if you apply that to something like the 103rd Psalm, where we're all familiar, where it says God will remove the sins of his people as far as the east is from the west. We've heard that before. Same word. God will divorce the sins of his people as far as the east is from the west. That just kind of gives us an intimate picture, a picture of how intimately involved we are with our sin. That it's something that we're married to and have to be divorced from. It kind of deepens our understanding there. Um, the next word that jumps out is sin, which is amartia in the Greek. If there's any Greek people in the audience, I apologize for my pronunciation. Um, but to miss the mark or wander from the path. And I told the 930 crowd, I really like that a lot better than talking about my sin. I would rather talk about the times that I missed the mark or wandered from the path. It just seems a little bit more compassionate. Um, so I like that. Blasphemy, um, blasphemia, impious or reproachful speech. Or slander. That one's pretty straightforward. Spirit's an interesting one. The Greek word is pneuma. And that is the work and power of God's personalized force. And there's an important thing to know about Jewish teaching at the time, how Jews thought about the Spirit. And if you remember from Michael's teaching, Matthew was a Jew writing his gospel of Jesus Christ for Jews. So he's coming with this understanding. The Jewish teaching taught that two, the, fun, the function of the Spirit were twofold. First, the Spirit was to bring God's truth to his people. And secondly, it was to enable his people to recognize and understand the truth when seen. Okay, so we have this Spirit, this work and power of God's personalized force that brings us the truth of God and allows us to understand it and receive it. So we take what we've learned here. And we're going to put up on the screen here an, an ugly passage that you would never see in any Bible. But it's going to help us understand a little bit better. So let me read this to you. Using the translation that we just did. God will divorce or separate you from all the times when you wandered off the path, missed the mark, or spoke impious or reproachful words. But slandering the work and power of God's personalized force is something from which you cannot be separated. Not quite there yet, right? It's still, we, we may, we might a little deeper, but it's still not clear as to what we're doing or not doing. So the question now is how do we make sense of this? Are we still boiling this down to some legalistic guideline of what we can say and what we can't say? Is there a sin too far? Is there something that we can do that places us outside of God's mercy? That's still the question we're asking ourselves. There is a very popular um, theologian named John MacArthur. 
and in his aptly titled the MacArthur New Testament Commentary, he boils this passage, the unpardonable sin, down with a metaphor story from World War II. And I'm going to read this story to you. During World War II, an American naval force in the North Atlantic was engaged in heavy battle with enemy ships and submarines on an exceptionally dark night. Six planes took off from the carrier to search out those targets. But while they were in the air, a total blackout was ordered for the carrier in order to protect it from attack. Without lights on the carrier's deck, the six planes could not possibly land, and they made a radio request for the lights to be turned on just long enough for them to come in. But because the entire carrier, with its several thousand men, as well as all the other planes and equipment, would have been put in jeopardy, no lights were permitted. When the six planes ran out of fuel, they had to ditch in the freezing water, and all crew members perished into eternity. There comes a time when God turns out the lights, when further opportunity for salvation is forever lost. Now, this is an important picture here, so I'm going to have, have, some, uh, have some plants in the audience here. I'm going to ask Carrie and Fran and Jeff to come up here. Don't worry, Carrie works here, and Fran and Jeff are related to me, so don't, don't worry about them. I want to I play this out for you. Carrie's going to be over here. Whatever, do what I say. Carrie's over here. Y'all go over here too. Carrie is the aircraft carrier. Okay? So Carrie's God. Don't let that go to your head. And Fran and Jeff are going to be planes. Now take off and fly away from Carrie. Let's see some good flying. That's nice. Good stuff. Okay. Now, wait, I didn't say turn around yet. Keep flying. Okay. Now stop. Now I want you to fly back and Carrie, when they get here, I want you to turn your back on them, cross your arms and ignore them. Come on back. Good flying. It's good stuff. We're coming back to the aircraft carrier. Okay. Does this look like your God? Is this the God that you worship? Okay. So we're going to push through the MacArthur. But let's have a hand for our volunteers there. It's good stuff. So if MacArthur's not quite there, how do we make sense of this? What's really going on? What are the Pharisees doing when they describe Jesus the way they do. They're presented with Jesus. He heals this person. The crowd starts to mumble, who is this guy? Is this the son of David? That means, is he the Messiah? That's what they're asking. And the Pharisees are given this choice to say he is the son of David. He is the Messiah. He is who he says he is. He's God. Or what's the alternative? C.S. Lewis tells us that the alternative is to say he's crazy. There's no gray. Jesus went around saying things like, I am the Son of God. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. I am the Son of Man. He went around healing people and teaching people. You don't get to do these things if you're a good teacher. You either are that person, you are God on earth, or you're crazy. There's no gray in between there. So the Pharisees are given this choice. Who are you going to say that he is? But for the Pharisees to say that he was God, that he was the Messiah, was a big deal. Because Jesus was coming along and doing everything differently. The Pharisees had been raised and trained and educated and had lived their lives a certain way within the Judaistic teaching. And here comes Jesus and he's welcoming outcasts. He's hanging out with people that a good Jew would never hang out with. 
The Pharisees and the church at the time were really concerned with liberating Israel from Rome. Jesus didn't care about that. They were really concerned with the sacrificial system. Jesus didn't care about that. So for them to embrace him would be throwing out everything they knew, turning their religion on its head. And they couldn't do that. And they didn't do that. They actually said, not only is he crazy, but he's probably in league with the devil. He's probably in league with Beelzebub. Isaiah 5.20 reminds us, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness. And that's exactly what they did. They called good evil. So what are the consequences of doing that? What are the consequences of saying, all right, I'm presented with this truth in Jesus, and I'm now choosing to reject it? Remember what the two functions of the Holy Spirit are. The two functions of the Holy Spirit are to bring God's truth to his people, put them up here, and to enable his people to recognize and understand the truth when seen. So if I reject Jesus and the kingdom that he reigns over, which includes the Holy Spirit, I cut myself off from the ability to receive the truth, and to recognize it and understand it. There's a little formula here if you'll follow me. I think this might help. The only thing needed for salvation, to be saved, to spend eternity with God, is repentance. That's the only thing you have to do, is be repentant. And the only thing needed to be repentant is confession. You have to confess the times when you missed the mark. Confess the times when you've wandered off the path. But you can't have confession if it's not made clear to you by the Holy Spirit what you have done to wander from the path. The Holy Spirit is your guide. It shows you where that path is and when you've wandered from it. It helps you to understand and convicts you and gives you the ability to have confession. So if I cut myself off from the Holy Spirit... I can't have confession, which means I can't be repentant, which means I can't be saved. And I've reached the land of the unpardonable. But it's important to know that it wasn't God doing that. I did that. The Pharisees did that. Some of our early church fathers had some very smart things to say about this. Origen is one of the early founders of the church. Um, reputed to have studied under John, the apostle. Um, so didn't know Jesus directly, but knew a guy who knew Jesus. And he said, only those persons who have been found worthy of it have a part in the Holy Spirit. As a result, there appropriately cannot be any forgiveness for those who fall away into evil, for they defeat the counsels of the Spirit who is in them. His pupil, St. Irenaeus, said, so now let us, receiving the Spirit, walk in newness of life, obeying God, inasmuch, therefore, as without the Spirit of God we cannot be saved. Fast forward a couple thousand years, one of our contemporaries, William Barclay, says that the Pharisees had so long been deliberately blind and deaf to God that they had lost the faculty of recognizing Him when they were confronted with Him. It was not God who had banished them beyond the pale of forgiveness. They had shut themselves out. Years of resistance to God had made them what they were. Robert Lukacs says something very similar. It is not that God will not forgive us, 
forgive forgiveness rather that we cannot receive. So here we are recognizing that it's not God not giving us this forgiveness, but that we are choosing to place ourselves in a land where we can't receive the counsel of the Holy Spirit and therefore not achieve forgiveness because we're making deliberate choices. So what I want to show you right now is verses 31 and 32 in the message. Going back to the idea that the translation is important. Here's what the message says. There's nothing done or said that can't be forgiven. But if you deliberately persist in your slanders against God's Spirit, you are repudiating the very one who forgives. If you reject the Son of Man out of some misunderstanding, the Holy Spirit can forgive you. But when you reject the Holy Spirit, you're sawing off the branch on which you're sitting, severing by your own perversity all connection with the one who forgives. Makes a lot more sense than the NIV, right? It's a little clearer. I mean, that's basically where we got when we went through the process of interpreting on our own. I really am drawn to the passage that says you're sawing off the branch on which you're sitting. That really brings it home for me that I'm the one with the saw in my hand. I'm doing this. And something that is important to note, when you saw off a branch, it's not like that. It takes a little while to get through. Same thing with this. Same thing with all sin. It's not overnight. It's incremental. It's continually making deliberate choices to tune that voice out, to turn the Holy Spirit off, to say, I hear that, but I don't want to hear it. I want to keep doing what I'm doing. So I'm just going to tune that out a little bit more and a little bit more until eventually I can't hear it anymore. And I get myself into a place where I can't receive it. It's a repeated choice. If we consciously make this decision to know the truth of Jesus and reject it as revealed through the Holy Spirit, that will place our hardened hearts exactly where they're determined to be, outside the forgiveness and the mercy of God. And here's the thing. If we make that choice, God will respect it. He will let us make that choice. So what does this all tell us, especially if we think about what we saw earlier with the aircraft carrier and MacArthur's metaphor? I'm not going to have my actor stand back up again, but let's see if we can recast that, that vision. If we agree that God can be an aircraft carrier, and I've got to tell you as a side note, I'm not real thrilled with that metaphor. I don't really believe that God is ever in danger and has to shut off his lights. I don't think he would ever be subject to some attack where he would have to retreat. But let's just say he's an aircraft carrier, okay, and planes take off. And let's put the Pharisees in those planes. Let's make them the pilots. And they take off from the aircraft carrier and fly away. Here's what really happened. They start radioing each other back and forth between planes and convincing themselves that the aircraft carrier didn't exist in the first place. And the aircraft carrier is still behind them, and in fact, it's probably pursuing them with its lights on, sirens blazing. Kevin told me earlier with the guys out on the deck waving flags, probably radioing, trying to get their attention. And these Pharisees continue to ignore and continue to fly away, and they're happy to do so. And in their ignorance, they run out of fuel, 
and crashed into the ocean. That is probably a little bit more accurate vision of what's going on there. So what's the real point if we take that? What's the real point of this scripture? I got to tell you, I think it's two questions. Those two questions are, who is Jesus and who am I in relationship to him? If you remember what we read at the beginning, Jesus has a man brought to him. He heals him. Blind and deaf, he gives him sight and hearing. The crowd is amazed. And the first thing that they say is, who is this guy? Who is this? Is this the son of David? So right there at the top, Matthew's hitting his audience with the question, who is this guy? Who do you say he is? And then everything else in that scripture, the rest of that section, is getting you to ask yourself the question, and who will you be in relation to him? Once you have decided who he is, who are you going to be in relationship to him? Are you going to be like the Pharisees? Are you going to call him crazy and reject him? Are you going to work with him or against him? Gather or scatter is what the scripture says. Scripture talks about good trees and bad trees. Are you going to be a good tree or a bad tree? Are you going to bear good fruit or bad fruit? Everything else in there is trying to get you to answer the question, who are you going to be in relation to him? I think these questions are not really new. My opinion would be that these are the questions that permeate the Bible. That every story in the Bible is trying to get you to answer these two questions. Who do you say God is and who are you going to be in response to that? If you go back to Moses, Moses comes up on the burning bush. The burning bush talks to him. And what's his first question? Who are you? Who are you? And when God says, I am Yahweh, I am, I am. His second question is, who am I? Who am I that you would talk to me? Who is God? Who is Jesus? And who are you going to be in relationship to him? I think that's the basis of the scripture. If you ever want to know what it's trying to get across. It's not the point of this talk this morning, but I'm going to answer these questions for you from my point of view. This is what I think. Who I think Jesus is is who I think God is. I think he's the creator and ruler of the universe. I think he's the all-knowing, always-present, loving, and merciful king. He's named every star in the sky and somehow still knows every hair on my head. He knows the real me. He loves me more than I can possibly imagine. He's my heavenly father who gives me everything I need, has an eternal plan for my existence, and wants to be in relationship with me. So if that's who he is, who am I going to be in response to that? I'm going to be his creation because that's what I am. And as his creation, I'm therefore his servant. But I'm also his child. So I'm not a slave in this kingdom. I'm an heir. As an heir, I live my life open to the Father, accepting the gifts he offers me, including the peace counsel and guidance of the Holy Spirit. If you remember that scripture, Jesus told the Pharisees, if I'm being truthful with you, if I am who I say I am, then the kingdom of heaven is upon you. It's here now. Not when you die, not when you go to heaven. It's here now. 
So am I going to live like that, like I'm an heir to the present kingdom? If I live like an heir, accept the gifts of the Spirit, it is impossible for me to wander so far off the path that I can't have forgiveness. For an heir, God's mercy and forgiveness are limitless. For an heir, there is no sin that is unpardonable. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you this morning for the truth and the power of your word. We are grateful that we have the opportunity to dig deeper and to learn more about you. Father, we recognize that your grace and mercy are so big that if we just get a surface grasp of these scriptures and accept them with a childlike faith, that that's good enough for you. That that is fine. And we're grateful for that, Father. But we also recognize that as we have done here this morning, that if we dig a little deeper, it's not that we earn anything more. It's that we get to know you more. That you reveal yourself to us in the scriptures. That you show us how much you want to be in relationship with us. And we take a verse like this that if we just surface glanced it, we would dismiss it as some scary sin verse that we're not sure about. But that if we dig into it, you're really saying, I want to be in relationship with you. Father, the world does not agree with that. We're going to leave this place this morning and it's going to be hard to remember to live like heirs. It's going to be hard to remember that the kingdom of heaven is here upon the earth right now. And it has been for 2,000 years. But we claim and accept and ask for the Holy Spirit who brings us your truth and helps us to recognize it and understand it so that when we leave this place and go back to our lives this week, we can live like heirs. We ask all this in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Have a great week. We'll see you next week when we get back to Matthew 5. Thanks for coming.